Tonight on Farage, a huge number of migrants cross the English Channel today, taking us through the 20,000 number. Nearly all of them young men. Are they refugees or economic migrants? Boris Johnson talks trees at COP26. Well, if he cares that much, why do we still, at Britain's largest power station, continue to burn trees? And joining me on Talking Pints, economist Vicky Price. Well, I suspect only here on GB News are we going to talk about the events in the English Channel today, as all the other news channels are obsessed with COP26 and trying to push the Prime Minister even further in a green direction. It has been another very busy day in the English Channel, with many, many hundreds of people crossing. Just take a look at the Dover lifeboat this morning coming in to the harbour, absolutely rammed full to the gunnels. Um, and I don't know what the number today will be, but it'll certainly be 450, it'll certainly be 500. Looking at the weather forecast, I would guess that tomorrow it'll be even more. That's the lifeboat in Dover, as you can see, absolutely rammed. Um, extraordinarily, some of the means by which people are travelling um, across the Channel uh, are changing as well, including what looked like a child's uh, little dinghy. Um, quite why anybody would attempt to cross the Channel in one of those... I'm not actually too sure. Uh, but there we are. They come in dinghies, they come in ribs. Some of them are 11 metres long, others are little two-man kayaks. So it would appear that the French are very good at stopping and impounding our fishing boats under a ransom to release them, but they're not so keen, it seems, to stop the illegal migrant crossings, despite the fact we still seem to be giving them lots and lots of money. I can't fathom it. And there is actually no solution in sight. Today, the number that have come across the English Channel throughout this year of 2021 has gone through the 20,000 number, as I predicted back in the spring of this year. And there is absolutely no end in sight. Oh, it's all well and good for Priti Patel and Boris Johnson to stand up at the Tory party conference and get the cheers of the delegates. But it all means nothing, because the economic pull factors are still there. And can you believe, of the 20,000 that have come so far this year, not a single one has been deported. Now, interestingly, some new figures have been released today for 2020. That's the year in which 8,400 came. And 87% of those that came were men, 74% of them young, single men. So for once, I'll agree with Priti Patel. In the vast, vast majority of cases, these are not refugees. They are economic migrants. We as a country are being taken for a ride. And yet our government is too weak to deal with this. So I'm asking you tonight, what do you think? Do you agree with me or do you disagree with me? Are these refugees or are they economic migrants? Let me know what you think, please. Give your opinions to GB Views at gbnews.uk or tweet at GB News. Well, as I said, I can't see any end particularly in sight. Uh, but I'm pleased to say joining me right now is Tony Smith, former Director General of UK Border Force and Managing Director of Fortinus Global Limited, a border security consultancy. Tony, we've had this conversation before over the last couple of years, <laughs> but 20,000 is a pretty significant milestone, I would suggest. 
Yes, it is, Nigel. The numbers do keep going up, don't they? And as you say, you continue to report this, although it's not being widely reported uh, across the media, nor was it widely reported, Nigel, that three people sadly lost their lives last week off the East Coast. Um, Somalis in a small dinghy which overturned and God knows how they finished up up there. But this is just tragic that we can't seem to get any, as you say, any end in sight in terms of agreeing with our uh, colleagues in France. What are we going to do to stop this? Because it cannot be a good thing that people are travelling on dangerous waters, and you know better than me what it's like out there. I've seen your reports. You've been out there yourself. Mm. Um, I don't know how many people have drowned, Nigel. I suspect a lot more than we're hearing about, if we do ever hear about it. And the migrant smugglers are winning. That cannot be a good thing, surely, politically, on either side of the channel. Yet we can't seem to reach agreement with France on what we're going to do about it. Yeah, I mean, the um, gangs are making millions of euros every week, particularly in, in calm weeks. Of that, there is no doubt. And look, I mean, Tony, we've, we've got a problem with the French over this. We've got a problem with the French over fishing. We've got a problem with the French over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, and I can't see the French signing any agreement with us. Um, so we're going to have to get tough. But firstly, Tony, to my question. Do you think I'm right... Do you think Priti Patel is right? Particularly given those figures released today that 74% of those that came last year were young, single men, 87% of a total male. Surely the vast majority of these would not qualify as refugees. Yeah, the refugee system isn't, doesn't work like that, Nigel. Unfortunately, it's not really... Uh, a question of a simple question of economic uh, status versus refugee status. It's to do with where they're from. Yeah. And uh, actually, a lot of the refugees, they are, as you say, uh, young men. Uh, but actually, their country of origin is from a country uh, where, you know, returns are remarkably difficult. So, you know, many would say that actually, because they are from uh, places like um, Somalia, uh, Ethiopia, Iraq, Actually, they should be given asylum. But as we've discussed before, that's not really the point. The point is that many, as I understand it, many of the migrants that are arriving, Nigel, have been living in Europe for some considerable yeah. time now and could and probably have uh, sought uh, asylum there and may well have got asylum there had they sought it, but they want to come here. They want to live here and they are being encouraged um, to, to, to make the journey because they are seeing what you said, that we aren't removing anybody back again. And the only way to reverse this trend, to stop the boats, is to break the business model, which means we, we have to send people back to France. But doing that is really difficult without the agreement of the French. And then when we say, well, if we can't send them back to France, well, where are we going to send them to? So they are looking in legislation. Well, there are other safe countries that might be prepared to take them back, that maybe they passed through on the way here that would be prepared to take them back. We might find some that would. But returning them to their source country, which clearly these are countries that are uh, suffering from um, government disruption, they're failed states, they can make a very, very sound case, Nigel, even though they're young men, that I can't go back there because it's a failed state and I would suffer persecution yeah. if I did totally. so. And this is totally. the dilemma that the case workers find themselves in. But, Tony, we know, don't we, 
that the traditional definition of a refugee is, you know, somebody in fear of their life or their liberty because of their opinions, their ethnicity. In modern days, it would be sexuality. You know, we know what those criteria are. And of all the countries in Europe, of all the countries in the world, um, over the centuries, we've been open to people in that dilemma. We can't simply say, because Somalia and Sudan aren't very nice countries with unstable governments, that our doors are open to tens of millions. No, well, I think the problem is that, you know, Europe itself has significant migratory problems, Nigel, as you will know. And actually, my colleague in, in the US gave a speech just last week, former commissioner of the CBP, that they're not getting 200 an hour, Nigel, the caravan people on the southern coast. Children are being used as pawns. They're not actually belonging to the adult. <laughs> but, of course, with a child, it's impossible for the Americans, as you know. You know, you've been over there too. To, to, so, so they are facing record numbers, actually, in, on the southern border in the States. Um, you know, we are now facing record numbers across the channel. And the EU themselves are hanging on to a very fragile agreement with Turkey, which is due for renewal in February 22. And that's not going well. And if that falls over, I'm afraid they're going to see significant more uh, migratory pressures into the Schengen zone. And more of those will head up to northern France because they know that if they can get to northern France and they can find someone to give 500 euros to, 5,000 euros is nearer um, the mark, yeah, yeah, that's they're going to be able to get into the UK. And, and when they're in the UK, they're not going to be sent back. So you can see where this is headed. I'm, I'm afraid we've, it feels the, 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 you know, the border force, I think, at the moment feel helpless. Nigel, yep. because and they're not empowered. Patel, and yet Pretty Patel, since August 2019, has been promising us it's all about to end. Tony Smith, I've no doubt will speak to you when it hits 25,000 before the end of the year. Thank you once again for coming on. Well, I understand what Tony's saying, but uh, to me, a genuine refugee is somebody in fear of their life. Uh, and these are young men, and they're coming here to make money. Uh, most of them will make it, of course, in the illegal economy, which I'm sorry to say continues to thrive in this country. Now, GPs, if this is really a, a debate that is going on and on and on, and it is the fact that so many GP consultations are now done online. And the arguments have been made that actually it suits some people, it suits some working people, and particularly if, for example, it's a repeat prescription or something like that. But a study that came out overnight from the University of, of Cambridge said that whilst those appointments, those Zoom appointments, are suitable for some patients, they are disastrous for some others. And this is a, a row that's been going on between GPs and, in particular, some British newspapers. And the reputation of GPs within our community is taking, I think, something of a kicking, which can't be a good thing. And yet we hear from the BMA threats of strikes, etc. Well, joining me to discuss all this is a GP from Stoke. He's also the Lord Mayor of Stoke and National President of the British International Doctors Association, Dr Chandra Kanaganti. Uh, Dr Chandra, good evening to you. Good evening, Nigel. Good. Thank you for joining us. Do you understand why the Daily Mail, and indeed in this case the Times, are you know, regularly, every week, uh, publishing reports 
about just how unhappy and just how worried a lot of people are about the lack of face-to-face -face appointments. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, the study which you uh, quoted in, from Cambridge is for rheumatology. It's a hospital yep. speciality. It's yep. not specific for that, and I absolutely agree. It's in rheumatology speciality, you need to examine the patient. You cannot ex examining hands and joints, consultations. So absolutely agree with the findings of it. While face-to-face -face consultations are a key feature of general practice and absolutely necessary for some patients and certain conditions, the pandemic has proven that in many other cases, phone or video appointments are entirely appropriate. And in fact, they're appreciated by patients. And a crude focus on uh, uh, these kind of studies is probably extremely unhelpful. Uh, I think it's, it's important to, to see that there's no end in sight by certain press to the preoccupation about face-to-face -face appointments. We need a more intelligent conversation about the variety of appointments and care that are available to patients to meet their needs. GPs are seeing patients face-to-face -face all the time. In September, we have two million more appointments well, well, hang on. in general practice. Yeah. But hang on. I mean, yes, you're right. GPs are seeing people face to face, but the percentage yeah. of consultations done face to face has dropped substantially, as you well know, dropped by about 30% since the beginning of the pandemic. And OK, you're quite right. This Cambridge University study was specifically about rheumatology. But equally, on this programme just a couple of months ago, I did have the Dementia Society, and they estimate that 50,000 dementia diagnoses have been missed because of online consultations. So, I mean, do you understand why the public... And I, and I know this suits some people, and I get that, but do you understand more generally why the British public are beginning to lose faith in their GPs, who were once the most respected members of the local community? No, absolutely. General practices are, uh, are the during the crown of the natures, you know, and, and people appreciate our hard work. We are seeing more and patients than before pandemic levels. In August, we had approximately 58% face-to-face appointments. In September, it's gone up to 62%. Yes, absolutely right. It's nowhere near to 80% face-to-face appointments the pandemic level, but we are increasing now, and every patient who need to be seen after the phone call are seen. So, so GPs are doing their best. I, I, I think the, the, the question you asked about the dementia diagnosis being missed. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, I have to disagree with you, Nigel. Dementia diagnosis are made by psychogeriatricians and memory clinics, not by GPs. So, so this kind of criticism against GPs with quote quotations like that is very unhelpful. And this is causing poor morale among GPs. We are, we are less GPs now than ever before. From 2015, we lost around 1,300 whole-time equivalent GPs. We're 7% less GPs than before. What we need is an intelligent conversation about the, the appointments are different, but everybody will have a choice to book their face-to-face -face appointments. Everybody will be seen if they need to be seen. Yes, we need to have a more, uh, we have a different kind of models of consultations, and it is better for some patients. Some patients love the remote consultations. Some patients uh, actually no, want know, to be I seen at the that. time of... I get that. I get that. So is the real problem a lack of trained GPs? It is, actually. We have a, a considerably less uh, a number of full-time equivalent GPs. 
than what they are. In just in the last year alone, we have nearly 1,300 GPs who left the profession. And I think this is important to understand that if we keep on uh, uh, criticizing general practice like this, more and more of my colleagues will leave the profession. We need to understand that like any other professions in the hospitals as well, we are struggling with extreme pressures and the winter is coming and we need to work together to support each other rather than criticizing one profession. And, and a rapidly rising population. Well, look, I can't, Dr Chandra, for one moment um, criticize your work ethic because what the viewers don't know is you're actually on holiday in India uh, and you've come on to talk about this and do this at an ungodly hour of the night. And we thank you very much for coming on and for your contribution. Thank you. In a moment, we will talk about the French. How can we not talk about the French? Not just, not just the migrant problem, but it would appear that Napoleon, sorry, Monsieur Macron, has backed down somewhat overnight. We'll discuss that in a moment. As we go through 20,000 people that have crossed the English Channel in small boats this year, I'm asking you, given that 87% of them are male, are these genuine refugees or economic migrants? And some of your reactions already, Jay says, in my opinion, they are economic migrants and not refugees. It's mostly young men with hardly any women. This is true. Scott on GB View says, I'd cross the channel... I'd cross the channel. We're offering a four-star hotel with food and health care included and 38 quid a week spending money. Tim on Twitter says, these are economic migrants and we are being taken for a ride. I will never vote Tory again. Interesting, isn't it, that this particular issue in the, in the, in the red wall where people who'd been Labour for generations but voted Brexit and then voted for Boris Johnson, they're feeling very, very strongly about this. A viewer on Twitter says, the majority are economic migrants. Stopping all benefits and free health care would be a starting deterrent. Margaret on Twitter says, these are definitely economic migrants. The whole thing is a farce. And I've got to tell you, this is one of those areas where Westminster is hopelessly out of touch with public opinion. Now, it is COP26, as you know, uh, and we're going to cross over there now, um, and I think we're going to see President Biden speaking live. How lucky we are. Laureates on economics said it's going to lower inflation, raise wages, increase competition, create uh, two million jobs a year, etc. And so I think that uh, I understand that Joe is looking for the precise detail to make sure nothing got slipped in in terms of the way in which the legislation got written that is different than he acknowledged he would agree to. But I, I think we'll get this done. You mentioned the word inflation there. You recently said you have no short-term answer to bring down gas prices. But as you know, it's not just gas prices now. Rents are up. The cost of everyday items are up. Inflation in the U.S. is at a 13-year high. So when specifically should Americans expect those prices to come down? Well, look, um, first of all, the significant reason why prices are up is because of COVID affecting the supply chain. I mean, I know I'm not trying to... Well, there was Joe Biden, and clearly, you know, the press corps, a lot of them American, asking him about the state of the U.S. economy. The other problem Biden's got, and I touched on it last night, is there is an election in Virginia today for the governorship 
of that state, and it is absolutely neck and neck between the sitting Democrat and the challenger Republican in a state that's always been regarded as being Democrat. And interestingly, the key issue in this election tonight in America is education. Education is top of voters' concerns, and it revolves around critical race theory. Tomorrow night, we'll bring you those results from Virginia and see just how angry the public are about critical race theory. Well, joining me in Glasgow is GB News' political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, good evening. Hello, Nigel. Uh, interesting, isn't it, there, Joe Biden? You're right, though, talking more about domestic issues. Actually holding a press conference, it must be said, he doesn't hold those uh, very often, but he is as he's about to leave uh, Glasgow and dealing with many of the same issues. And actually, I thought, interesting, Nigel, given the same responses that we've heard from Boris Johnson when it comes uh, to inflation, about the global supply chain issues following the COVID pandemic. Earlier on today, though, he has been talking uh, about COP and what progress has been made here. Now, there were two announcements today of reasonable significance that people got at least here inside the centre, quite excited about. One on deforestation, where they got 85% of the countries with the biggest amount of forests, if you like, places like Canada, Russia, interestingly, Brazil and the Congo, saying that they are going to try and get rid of deforestation by the end of this decade. In reality, though, was that going to be the case? Really, deforestation under Bolsonaro? I'm not entirely sure that's what's happening, at least on the ground at the moment. And also an announcement on methane, trying to lower methane emissions. The US and the EU signed up to that as well, uh, Nigel. 30% reduction by the end of this decade. Again, quite significant in the sense that methane is the second largest contributor to greenhouse gases after carbon dioxide. We oh. talked, didn't we, didn't we, a lot yesterday about how gloomy and pessimistic, almost apocalyptic, the Prime Minister was in his language about COP and its success and the future and climate change. Today, the optimistic kind of boosterous Boris came back a little bit, in which he was suggesting that there is room for optimism, he reckons, at this summit, at Nigel, musing, and he loves his metaphors, about the ticking bomb and that there was a bomb disposable team potentially on hand to help out. Let's have a listen. There are, there are plans for 440,000 uh, more jobs uh, in all sorts of things from... from uh, battery technology to, to wind farms and many, many other things. So uh, the economy is going uh, this way. Uh, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And uh, we, can use, we can use this moment to, to trigger a greater growth and greater prosperity, but do it in a green way. And I, th I do think people, people get that. And as for uh, your brilliant suggestion of, uh, of a referendum, Mesa, I think that's I, th I, I think this country's probably had a, uh, enough referendums to be going on with. Uh, for a while. That's my general view on the matter. But, but um, uh, uh, anyway. Uh Making the economic case for why he reckons, you know, this kind of green agenda is good necessarily for Britain. Tomorrow is going to be a significant day. The Chancellor and the Governor of Bank of England here talking about raising uh, finance. And on that question, and he was asked this question about whether there should be a referendum, I thought it was an interesting answer. Uh, essentially arguing that the country's had enough of referendums, though that's not necessarily how the public feels. There have been opinion polls that have suggested a majority would like to see a referendum on whether Britain should become carbon neutral by the middle of this uh, century. All in all, though, frankly, you know, there's been a lot of peacocking, uh, Nigel, over the last couple of days. Uh, we've seen everyone from 
Jeff Bezos to Bill Gates here. Leonardo DiCaprio was here as well, along with those world leaders. Frankly, not really achieving very much, apart from stating what they want. The real negotiations actually begin tomorrow when the delegates and the negotiators from all over the world start actually meeting and thrashing uh, things out. Will a deal be done? Can they make progress? As I say, Boris Sanders a bit more optimistic uh, today. But in the end, as someone pointed out today, if countries like China aren't properly engaged, aren't properly on the pitch, can the game be won? You'd have to say, given where they are in terms of global emissions, that's going to be incredibly difficult. Yes, I rather agree. Darren, thank you very much indeed. And Darren was wrong, of course, there, because all of those celebrities have achieved a great amount. They've shown their virtue. Now, I don't disagree with stopping deforestation, but I'd like to have seen more em emphasis on fresh tree planting, given there were six trillion trees in the world in 1900 and there are three trillion trees now. But if Boris Johnson is going to speak with such passion about stopping deforestation, perhaps he ought to have a quick look in his own backyard. The Drax Power Station in Yorkshire. Yep, it's a big power station. It's a big monstrosity. There it is. Have a guess, folks, what Drax consumes to produce electricity up in Yorkshire. Wood. Yes, trees. Trees that are imported, turned into wood chip, brought across the Atlantic from North America, burnt at Drax, and it is the single biggest emitter, emitter of CO2 in this country. If you want to stop deforestation, Mr Johnson, close down Drax. Now, a deadline has passed. The French had given us an ultimatum. It seemed the government of Jersey um, had made a few potential minor short-term concessions on fishing licences. Uh, the British trawler is still impounded in the west of France. And I just wonder, is this the big, the big climb-down from Emmanuel Macron, or is this row going to simmer on? Well, joining me in Paris, freelance journalist Peter Allen. Peter, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Now, we've got disputes with France at all sorts of different levels at the moment. Um, and I, I, I know you've got a very good French accent, and I'm sure you're using it all the time um, at the moment living there. Did Macron blink, in your opinion? I don't think he did, really, Nigel. I think that uh, something that hasn't been reported in Britain is that the French, uh, as is very typical over here, had a very, very long weekend. It was a bank holiday here on Monday, and uh, it, it seemed a very, very good idea, I think, for French politicians. They're always a bit flummoxed uh, after a bank holiday. They take a while to, to get back uh, into the groove, as it were. And so there was every reason to say, well, let's wait a few days. Let's uh, have a few uh, more discussions. Let's have a lunch uh, with Lord Frost in Paris on Thursday. Yeah. That's going to be an interesting meal with Clement Bone, who has, is a very, very lively uh, conversationalist, uh, as it were, comes out with lots of anti-British rhetoric. But, uh, no, I, I honestly think that uh, it's just been postponed, this, uh, this, this issue. Very important point, Nigel, which is also being underplayed, is there were lots of buoyant headlines today about a British boat that was allegedly uh, released uh, from uh, custody, from French custody in La Havre today, Total nonsense. It's still there. Yeah. And uh, owners of the boat, their, their legal representatives in court in Rouen tomorrow, that goes on and on. And that was a pretty, pretty poor 
uh, claim by George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, uh, early this morning, saying that uh, 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 the Cornellus had actually been freed. Not true at all. That goes on and on, Nigel. Well, certainly, I don't think the British can afford to back down at all. And, uh, you know, there's fresh evidence here. Uh, you know, these fishing boats have something called AIS, which they have to have on, which proves where they are. Um, and, you know, Whitehall has been saying quite clearly, or briefing quite clearly, that many of these boats that have applied for licences, they can prove are not telling the truth because of AIS tracking about where they were fishing and about historic rights. And this is really... The way the French have played the common fisheries policy from the very start is to pretend they fished in different waters to where they usually went, to pretend they caught a load more than they did, um, and they benefited from the system. So I can't see the British or Jersey uh, governments backing down too much on this. Uh, we've got the meeting with Frost later on this week. Is Macron really going to precipitate a trade war over this? Is that really possible, Peter? Well, I don't think we're going to get a full-blown trade war, but certainly frictions are going to remain. And I think there'll be more and more incidents, uh, Nigel. I think this will go on and on. Of course, uh, officially, it's the EU that's meant to be negotiating with Britain. Yeah. Uh, the French uh, are very, very keen to certainly give that impression. It's almost like they know the EU is meant to be sorting everything out, but they can't resist... Uh, commenting uh, uh, and getting involved. Uh, Macron is almost holding himself back, as French presidents do. But again, Clement Bone, who's meeting Lord Frost in Paris on Thursday, he's coming out with really fiery language, uh, anti-British language. And uh, this is how the whole um, dispute is being handled. Again, I don't think it will turn into a full-blown uh, trade war, but I think this is certainly an issue which will go on and on. I speak to the French fishermen a lot, uh, especially those with the smaller boats, uh, below 12 metres. Yeah. They're not interested in, in the new technology. They're saying they should be allowed to go out there and, and, and fish as they want, want and has, as they've always done uh, in, in, in living memory, they would say, them and their fathers uh, before them. Um, but, uh, of course, this, uh, the French uh, effectively arresting this British boat uh, is something that has really upped uh, the ante. And, again, well, I can't see it being resolved. Uh, no, this not is not going to go away, Peter. This is not going to go away. You're absolutely right, whether it's this or the Northern Ireland Protocol or the cross-channel migrants, tensions with France are going to remain, and we will come back to you at some point in the not-too-distant future. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, how about this for a What the Farage moment? Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, she very much pushing hard the green agenda, and there she is. And she uses a private jet for virtually everything, including, including trips as short as 31 miles. You really just couldn't make it up, could you? And that, of course, as we learn, that 400 private jets have flown in for COP26. Aren't they all wonderful? Now, Greta Thunberg. Well, she's been very, very busy. She's been out and about speaking on the hustings, effectively, in Glasgow. Let's have a listen to a different kind of Greta. This COP26 is so far just like the previous COPs, and that has led us nowhere. They have led us nowhere. 
inside COP. They're just politicians and people in power pretending to take our future seriously, to pretending to take the present seriously of the people who are being affected already today by the climate crisis. Change is not going to come from inside there. That is not leadership. This is leadership. This is what leadership looks like. We say no more blah, blah, blah. No more exploitation of people and nature and the planet. No more exploitation. No more blah, blah, blah. No more whatever the are doing inside there. You can shove your climate crisis up You can shove your climate crisis up You can shove your climate crisis. You can shove your climate crisis. You can shove your climate crisis up your Well, not only has Greta Thunberg now become foul-mouthed, uh, completely carried away with her own importance, but if I ever I saw hubris, that was it. It's not leadership in there, it's leadership here. It's me, the teenager from Sweden, uh, who... She, at least she was smiling. She often seems to look very disturbed to me, but there we are. And my last What the Farage moment is Joe Biden this morning, travelling in in his big motorcade was flashed. Well, was he? A resident, clearly fascinated by the helicopter uh, going along, um, and this massive motorcade um, stood there in his front window, a large, naked Scotsman taking photographs of proceedings. Um, well, I'm sure that would have woken even Sleepy Joe up. In a moment, I will be talking pints in the GB News pub with economist Vicky Price. It's that time of the day. The GB News Pub is now open. And joining me for Talking Pints is economist Vicky Price. Vicky, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. It's interesting, you, you know, you grow up in Greece and you come to this country and you become an economist and you've had a, a very distinguished career. You've worked for big banks, for KPMGs. You've held, you've held some really very, very big jobs and been a very successful economist. But I really want to take you back to Greece because I could, I mean, you know, I could see that the Eurozone might well work for... Uh, the Low Countries and Germany and maybe France. I could see how an optimal currency zone did potentially, political questions, but did potentially exist. But Greece joined the Euro on, it seemed to me, a pretty spurious set of statistics. I mean, what has it done to your home country? The first thing to say is that everyone fiddled the statistics a little bit in order to get in. Uh, but I've written a book called Greekonomics where I showed very clearly that the euro was not an optimal currency at the time, yeah. uh, which I mean, you know, soon after it was um, developed and then adopted by all these countries. And it remained not being an optimal currency for quite some time. Uh, I also worked a little bit on the five economic tests that we did here in the UK when I was working for the government. I didn't believe that the euro was a good idea for us to join. Although I'm a real Europhile, and of course I was I mean, Greek-born. Yeah. 
and cared a lot about what would happen to Greece. But I didn't think that at the time of the Euro crisis, Greece should leave. It would have been too painful. So I'm afraid Greece had to suffer hugely over that period. And in my mind, wrongly. Yes, of course, there were things that were done early on which were mistakes, overspending, the Olympics, which really affected the, the fiscal position very significantly. And maybe, again, the statistics didn't tell you the entire story at the time. But after that point, I think Europe should seriously have helped Greece. And well, Germany and France were completely against it at the end of the day. Arguably, Greece was bailed out. Yes, but it was bailed out at some huge cost to Greece. I mean, no other country saw a drop in GDP of 26% yeah. over a number of years. And the interesting thing is it didn't just happen. Of course, here in the UK, we just had a 20% fall in GDP yeah. in one year. OK, and now we're recovering. Now, there you had falls year after year after year. And it got into a sort of vicious cycle. So it was just getting worse and worse because every time the EU or the MF would come and see that, in fact, the fiscal deficit was still in trouble, they would encourage raising taxes even more or reducing incomes for the people who work in the public sector yeah, or I mean, cut pensions, which, of course, then means less to spend. And democracy out of the window, Well, sort of. But it did work. The democracy, strangely, you know, showed that it can still survive despite that. And to me, the most amazing thing of this whole affair was that the Greeks, even though there were demonstrations we all saw on television here, yeah. the Greeks accepted it and actually did what they were so... I'm amazed. I'm amazed. I couldn't see it. I thought they'd rebel. And, but, well, they know. rebelled up to a point, but really nothing like what mm. you would have expected. And you saw this again with COVID, that they had very strict rules, seriously strict rules from the very beginning. And even until last summer, a few months ago, you had curfews. You had to get back home by nine, Amazing, times by six, and they did it. And you'd have thought, Which, you, I, know, I, I, I find it all hard to believe. I really, really do. Now, as an economist, you're going to be very much in demand, in my view, over the course of the next few years, because suddenly uh, economics, money, is rising up the list of people's priorities, um, the cost of living, the commodity price boom that we're seeing across all sectors, uh, inflation. Mm which I mean, you've got to be over 50 to even remember what inflation really is. What is we've, we've had central banks. We've had Bank of England, the Fed, telling us for the last year, don't worry your poor little heads about inflation. It's only a transitory thing. It's not really a problem. What's your view of inflation? Again, we need to remember where we started, particularly in view of this pandemic. I mean, yes, we worry now about inflation and... In the early bit of your programme, of course, you had Biden being interrogated by yeah. US uh, journalists about the rising cost of living there, which is over 5% mm -hmm. per annum. Um, but we had deflation for a while. Uh, we had deflation through the euro crisis uh, for a number of years in some of the countries, including Greece, that we discussed, but also uh, in Europe generally. And that is why uh, we, got, we saw interest rates there cut to negative, and they're still negative. One interest rate of the European Central Bank is negative. But of course, with COVID in particular, if you withdraw demand and obviously supply, everything closed down for a while. It's not surprising that you'd have very low inflation. In fact, you had negative energy prices. I mean, the oil was 
the price of oil was negative. I remember. It's the most extraordinary yeah, thing. Very bizarre, wasn't it? Yeah. Very bizarre. Well, of course it would bounce back when you remove restrictions and everything's happening. So the reason why the central bankers are saying it's transitory, which I think it will be, the only question is for how long will it be transitory? You know, when will it really start coming down? Is because we've had this huge increase in demand and supply mm. has been able to respond. So what do you do if you raise interest rates? Then, and it's a global issue, so you know, gas prices going up, uh, commodity prices generally going up, mm. you're not going to have any real impact except slow down growth in your own economy. So you're penalising you know, your own citizens. And the interesting thing is that we have here an inflation rate, which at just over 3%, isn't that great, but yes, it's above the 2% target, but it is considerably lower than the US at over 5%. And yeah. that... And the one in the EU, or rather in the Eurozone, which is just over 4%. And yet, it looks like we might be the first country to raise interest rates. It doesn't it's, make much you know, sense. It looks like we're going to. Do we have a good Chancellor in Rishi Sunak? Well, he did the right thing on the COVID emergency. But, of course, he wasn't the only country that reacted the way he did. Uh, the whole of Europe did the same. Lots of other countries did that too. The only one that didn't nevertheless spent even bigger percentage of GDP on mm. stimulus measures. It was the US, which didn't do the furlough scheme that we did. It just let everyone just lose their jobs, but gave them checks through their front doors. They all arrived. And also unemployment benefits went up very significantly, mm. which meant that people were able to survive. In fact, for many, it was much better to be unemployed than to have a job. Uh, it's one of the reasons why you see that everywhere. That, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, in been, America, you know, labour shortages yes. on a most extraordinary level. I, mean, Absolutely. I never thought I'd see it there, you know. But unemployment has fallen, of course, very significantly, mm. and lots of jobs have been created. They haven't gone back to where they were, but it was a different way of doing it. It still cost a lot. In fact, as I was saying, it costs more for the US to do what it did than for all the other countries that did what Rishi Sunak did. And when some normality returns, and it's beginning to, it feels like it is, is Brexit Britain going to do well? Well, you've seen the forecast from the Office of Budget Responsibility, which suggests that uh, we're not going to have long COVID, at least if it is, it's going to be yeah. mild, but we are going to have long Brexit. Uh, they think that uh, the economy will be 4% weaker as a result of Brexit. But they are the Treasury, and they are completely anti-Brexit, and they try to reverse the referendum. So I would kind of expect that from them, wouldn't I, really? Perhaps, but there are some really good economists here there that I know of respect. <laughs> and it isn't really disagreeing much with what others are saying. Even the, the pro-Brexit economists did say that in the short term there'll be a negative impact on the economy. And the important thing is what types of policies do you put in place to, to change that? So, you know, we could become, well, you know, re su really supply, innovative. Supply-side yeah. reform, I could argue. All that. Vicky, it's interesting. You've had a very, very distinguished career with some big highs... You've had one very dramatic low when you finish up in prison for a few months and we won't drill down into the reasons for that. But you have tried to turn that around, to a, in a sense, to a positive, haven't you? You've, you've, you've written about prison, you've talked about prison. Does prison work? Well, I'm also involved in quite a lot of charities... Yeah, I know you are. ..that, that work on, on that. Uh, no, it doesn't. So I've written this book called Prisonomics, which looked at the cost of a... And, you know, keeping people in prison, yep. and, and B, uh, what happens when they come out, if they have already lost all sorts of positions in society, if you like, uh, and quite unable to get jobs. And that hits women in particular, who, of course, are much more tied to their homes and their families and their kids and their community, whereas men can move around much more easily. So men tend to get employed 
faster. But we have to punish about. people who've broken our... I mean, there has to be some form of punishment, doesn't there, for people who've broken the law? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, but, of course, when you look at the differences between men and women, that's why I got really interested in, in really writing about women more than the mm -hmm. men. They're generally doing... Uh, you know, committing crimes which are quite low-key. They, they Not paying the BBC licence fee. Being for example, for example uh, and usually non-violent. And what the evidence shows is that quite often, you know, in fact, the majority of them have been abused at some point uh, or have been coerced or have been doing the various crimes because they're trying to feed the drug habits of their other half, if you like. Yeah. So, but what they need is quite a lot of... Uh, emphasis on dealing with mental issues. So quite a lot of the charities I'm involved with uh, have women's centres which try and avoid to, you know, getting these women to prison to begin with, if you like, or look after them when they come out. And the most important thing in terms of really stopping the reoffending, which is costing mm. something like 10 billion a year. It's unbelievable. Uh, it's unbe is to make sure that they have jobs. Yeah. And that is crucial, and getting them to be employed is the important No, well, I think, I think, as I say, I think you've turned a, a big negative um, around in many ways. So what next, Vicky? You've had the highs and the lows, and you're back busy as an economist. And as I said, I think economics is going to become a much bigger issue in our lives over the next few years. What, you've had a very interesting life today. What next? Well, I probably will continue to do the economics, and with a bit of luck, yeah. uh, your prediction is correct that I will be in, in demand. Um, but obviously, politics has always been an interest in terms of influencing what happens, and I yeah. think I'll want to continue to be involved in that. Very good. That was Vicky Price on Talking Pints. It's the end of the show, but of course, it is Barrage the Farage where you send in your questions, which I do not see before. Let's give it a go. Alex asks me, do you think any country will come to Taiwan's aid in the event of a Chinese invasion? I haven't got time to answer that, but my worry is... My worry is no. Um, and given their dominance in the semiconductor market, uh, it, it's worthy of a full debate. A viewer asks me, if a refugee is already in France, why do they still need to escape to the UK? Well, under the old EU rules, it depended whether they'd applied for asylum there in the first place or not. Uh, I still maintain the vast majority of people that are coming would not, under the 1951 definition of refugee status, qualify. And they are young men seeking to come to this country to make money very often in the illegal economy. Victoria asks, do you enjoy reading? And if so, do you have a favourite author? Well, you know, I don't get much time to read because I'm so busy doing current affairs and I read lots and lots of current affairs. If I had time, I think I'd reread all of P.G. Woodhouse just because it's terrific and it's fun. What do you like reading, Vicky? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, Greek tragedies, maybe? Greek tragedies. That's the Euro. <laughs> Philip asks, who would you like to see as leader of the Conservatives? A Conservative. And I've got time for one more. Richard asks, should the Canadians and Americans have shared planes to carp? After all, we'll always be encouraged to carpool. Do you know what? We had John Redwood in the other day, and he suggested that COP was done virtually to save all this travel. But, of course, that was simply never, ever going to happen. Well, thank you, everybody, for participating today, for getting involved in that debate. As I say, more than 20,000 people have crossed the channel. Uh, it's completely out of control. There's no end in sight, and the cost of this country is enormous.